Uh, good morning, everyone. Uh, this morning, we have another happy instance of our lectionary readings fitting our present moment as a church. As we're in a time of transition to a new year with new vestry members, we read of two other moments of transition in our passages, Elijah's transport to heaven and Jesus's transfiguration on the high mountain at the time when he has begun to tell his disciples of some very difficult changes and challenges to come. I heard, I heard a very wise insight recently. People don't fear change, they fear loss. As a person of melancholy temperament who often experiences change as loss, that really resonates with me. But of course, change also opens up new possibilities and promise the kinds that we find Paul describing in our reading from 2 Corinthians 4. So my theme then is transition and transformation. And I'll walk us through these texts with some observations and reflections and bring together some of the insights and lessons that they teach us. Would you pray with me? Lord, I thank you for your words, I thank you for your constant presence with us, your constant shepherding of St. John's. And I do pray that through these episodes, through your word and with my words, you would speak to us, inspire us, commit us to follow your way as we look at this new year. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So first, the passage from 2 Kings, Elijah's transportation into heaven. This famous episode of Elijah being taken up into heaven marks the transition, of course, from his prophetic ministry to the work of his disciple, Elisha. <clears throat> Elijah had faithfully served the Lord as his prophet for years, having undergone some intense suffering but also seeing extraordinary triumphs. I'm thinking of uh, his victory over the prophets of Baal in 1 Kings 18, for example. And here in one of the most dramatic episodes in scripture, for reasons still debated, God sweeps Elijah into the heavens before his death. Enoch was the only other human being in the Bible who was taken in this way. Although the description is brief, the event itself is cinematic the extraordinary erupting into the ordinary. And the scene is filled with pathos. Uh, the Lord is great with special effects. So we read in verses 11 and 12, again, as Elijah and Elisha continued walking and talking, a chariot of fire and horses of fire separated the two of them. And Elijah ascended in a whirlwind into heaven. Elisha kept watching and crying out, Father, Father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. But when he could no longer see him, he grasped his own clothes and tore them into pieces. We can feel the, the loss that Elisha experienced in that moment. Just imagining him staring off into the sky as he watched his beloved master, mentor, and teacher disappear. The tenderness of their relationship is expressed throughout this passage, as we learn that Elisha did know that the Lord was going to take away Elijah. And three times when Elijah tells him to wait behind, 
Elisha declares, as the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. It's not easy to have someone you love and esteem so highly, someone who has been a teacher and a guide and a friend, depart. These, of course, are often loved ones as well, parents, for example. And when you're the person who needs to step into their shoes, it can be even more unsettling. Now, fortunately, we're not losing any of our leaders in our own modest moment of transition. Though keep your eye on John Hare if you happen to accompany him on one of his walks. <laughs> Whoosh, and John is gone. But we do, of course, wonder if we're up for the challenges, if we will have the resources to carry on the work. In this moment from 2 Kings, Elijah, also knowing that his time had come, says to Elisha, tell me what I may do for you before I am taken. And Elisha responds, please let me inherit a double share of your spirit. Elijah tells him that he's asking a hard thing. But if he sees Elijah when he's taken up, it will be granted. And when Elijah is transported, Elisha does see then takes up his, mentor, his master's mantle and begins his own ministry, thus inaugurating an image for transition that we have continued to use through the ages. And I'll have more to say about the taking of a mantle from our predecessors, but let's move on to our next episode, the transfiguration moment uh, from Mark 9. This even more famous moment in our history is likewise dramatic, though in this case, utterly unexpected. Jesus takes three of his disciples, Peter, James, and John, up a high mountain. It's unclear which one, possibly Mount Hermon or Mount Carmel. Luke tells us that it was to pray and that Jesus is transfigured while praying. Like the other gospel writers, Mark tells us that the appearance of Jesus and his clothing became more dazzling white than any earthy, earthly launderer could achieve. He was, Luke tells us, gleaming or radiant with splendor. And here we think, of course, of the appearance of Moses after he spent time with the Lord, so radiant with the Shekinah glory that he had to wear a veil to keep from frightening others an image Paul takes up then in 2 Corinthians. Well, on this mountain, lo and behold, Moses appears with Jesus, as does Elijah, the representatives of the law and the prophets. And we are told that they are having sort of an impromptu conference. Luke tells us that it concerned Jesus's own impending departure, which Jesus had begun to convey to his disciples. Indeed, Jesus' announcement that he would be rejected by the elders and killed, but also that he would rise again, brackets this episode. The disciples didn't really get what was going on any more than they yet understood what was going to happen to Jesus and what this would mean for them. And it's actually kind of funny, I, I think. Once again, it's Peter who speaks up. He proposes that they make this arrangement somewhat permanent by erecting three tabernacles, you know, sort of keeping this spiritual retreat going. 
Though Mark adds, he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. Now, this is classic Peter. Not knowing what to say, he spoke. But it was also Peter who later wrote that it was this moment which solidified for him the truth of the gospel. Recalling in 2 Peter that they were eyewitnesses of Jesus's majesty on that mountain and heard the declaration of the father from heaven. This is my son, the beloved. Listen to him. Jesus's majestic appearance emphasizes another theme that accompanies these moments of transition. Glory. It's a theme in our psalm which declares that God reveals himself in glory, and one that Paul takes up in our passage from 2 Corinthians chapter 2, or chapter 4. Let's look at that passage. <clears throat> in the previous chapter, 2 Corinthians 3, Paul describes two covenants and two ministries, both accompanied by glory. One was the ministry of the law, inscribed by Moses, which Paul declares a, quote, ministry of death and a ministry of condemnation because it could not be ultimately fulfilled by human beings. And so its glory, he says, fades away. The other, the ministry of the Spirit, inaugurated by Jesus, which he says is of a surpassing glory because it gives life, freeing human beings finally from sin and its consequences. As he says in, in verse 17 of chapter 3, where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. Paul also takes up the image of the veil in chapter 3, which appears again in our passage. He once more recalls how Moses wore a veil after spending time with the Lord because the people couldn't even look at him. So radiant would his face become. In Christ, Paul tells us, this veil which hides glory has been removed because we now behold the Son. As John says of his experience and that of Jesus' earthly witnesses in his prologue to his gospel, we saw his glory. Glory is of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. But Paul tells us something else regarding glory. And here's the amazing thing. That glory which is in Jesus Christ, the fuller radiance of which Peter, James, and John caught just a glimpse on the mountain has come to gleam on other faces. So Paul concludes chapter three, but we all with unveiled face beholding as in a mirror, the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the spirit. Elijah was transported. Jesus was transfigured. We are being transformed. Paul then returns to the same image of the veil and the theme of glory in our passage from chapter 4. In its new guise, then, the veil is one which hides Christ. Even if our gospel is veiled, Paul writes, it is veiled to those who are perishing. Why? Because he says the God of this world has blinded them, is keeping them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So when we proclaim Christ, not ourselves, Paul reminds us, 
We bear witness to this same glory with hearts transformed. Proclaiming God, he says, who has shown in our hearts to give light of the knowledge of the glory of God. Where? In the face of Jesus Christ. And as glory bearers, we're not elevated above others, but Paul declares we become servants for Jesus' sake. In closing, then, let me return to the image of the mantle and tie together some of these themes and apply them to our own moment of transition at St. John's. We typically think of the passing of a mantle as the passing of authority and power which was certainly the case when Elisha took up the mantle of Elijah as his story unfolds. The sons of other prophets come to Elisha later in chapter two of second Kings and declare the spirit of Elijah rests on Elisha. And we learn they bowed to the ground before him. But this was not all that the taking up of his master's mantle meant for Elisha. Not long after this transition of the prophetic ministry, we find him in Bethel. And there we read at the end of 2 Kings 2, young lads came out from the city and mocked him. Crying out, go up, you bald head. Go up, you bald head. Can you imagine? Now they, of course, got their comeuppance. But one thing we observe is that the mantle he bore was also a mantle of suffering as Elisha would discover in more severe ways. The same is true of the mantle of Jesus. As I mentioned earlier, Jesus' announcement of his rejection and death, as well as his resurrection, bracketed his transfiguration. The three disciples had seen the fullness of his glory on the mountain, if only for moments, and that day of his resurrection and then of his final revelation would come. But in the meantime, he would suffer horribly. So here's my final point. We too have had a mantle passed to us. In some sense, we, a mantle is passed when, for example, new leaders in a church are installed as we are doing today. And I have great respect for what leadership in the church means and why it's important. But the greater, truer mantle is not that. The only mantle Christians bear ultimately is the mantle of Christ. And no individual or group of individuals, group of individuals bear his mantle. It is his body who bears it. The mantle of Jesus is ours collectively. And we bear it while surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses who have also borne it before us. Do you remember what Jesus said on another mountain just before he ascended? All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. So go, make disciples of all the nations. The mantle we bear as the body of Christ is a mantle of authority. But it's his authority. Listen to him, the father declared. The mantle we bear is a mantle of power but it is the power of his spirit. The, the mantle we bear is a mantle of witness, but we proclaim him, not ourselves. And the mantle we bear is a mantle of suffering in this life. And though one day we too will see his glory, even in our own faces, 
from glory to glory, we remain at present servants, which also is the mantle of the Lord, whose image we bear. Amen. Amen.